This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Bangladesh is buffeted every year by floods or cyclones or saline groundwater as climate change makes life hard for its 160 million people. You'd think they'd be crushed, wouldn't you? But Dr. Salim Ulhaq is here to show us how they are on the front foot and leading the world in ways to adapt. Their president, Sheikh Hasina, was recognised at COP26 for her role in taking climate change seriously. And Dr. Salim Haq, who is a climate scientist, is a shining inspiration to the world and to me. I thought he looked tired and disappointed at Glasgow, but in this recent interview at the Stanford Woods Institute with fellow IPCC author Chris Field, he is buoyant again. Dr. Salim Ulhaq is the director of the International Centre for Climate Change and Development. He's also professor at the Independent University of Bangladesh. For me, this is the year of accountability. On this radio show, we are going to follow up on all those pledges made at COP26. You can bet that the mainstream media will be diverted by other things, wars, pandemics and weather events, but not how are we going with those pledges for billions of dollars to start repairing the damage we've already created. The Green Climate Fund of $100 billion per year is one of those future topics. But as Dr. Salim Haq says... That $100 billion is a trivial amount now. What we are talking about in, are in the hundreds of trillions of dollars. All of us now are living in a climate world, and everything we used to do before even if we thought it had nothing to do with climate, now does. The Green Climate Fund was intended to help countries adapt to the climate change that exists. It wasn't really intended for loss and damage. And we could learn from Bangladesh as they build their social capital. So we have a policy of no one gets left behind. School kids in the coastal zone get training on they get assigned households, you know, a widow living on her own. There'll be two school children whose assignment is to go and get the widow and take her to uh, a shelter to make sure that she uh, is taken to a shelter. And, and it's the most effective cyclone evacuation in the whole world, I can tell you. It's the most effective in the whole world. Wouldn't that level of preparedness be wonderful here? Rainwater tanks is another adaptive measure. And in Bangladesh, they are being installed on rooftops in the areas where every year they have a few months of saline groundwater. 
In regional Australia, we often have to truck in water when there's been a drought, and every drought seems to take us by surprise. But how about we take a leaf out of Bangladesh's book and install tanks wherever they they would give people water security. We've had Bruce Shillingsworth here on the radio program asking for just that, rainwater tanks, out in the western part of New South Wales. So although the world voted us as the colossal fossil for getting in the way of bold climate action at the uh, climate conference in Glasgow, I think we can do more than wring our hands. Dr Salim Haq gives us a fresh perspective so please let us know if you are inspired to action. You know, my analogy with where we are now is of the, uh, you know, the mythical uh, uh, frog in slowly warming water. Uh, we've had 25 conferences of parties over more than two and a half decades of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Every year, countries come together, they promise to do things, uh, then they do a little bit, but they don't do everything they promise. We have the Paris Agreement and so on. However, in my view, when we came uh, to Glasgow in November last year uh, for the 26th Conference of Parties, it was a game-changing uh, COP. So we have already transitioned into a climate change impacted world. No longer something that's going to happen that we have to plan for and anticipate and be prepared for, but something that's already happening. And in the UNFCC language, that uh, the way we describe that is loss and damage from climate change is now a reality and happening. And I, uh, I personally termed the COP26 as the first COP in this new era of loss and damage from climate change because it's going to get worse. We are now inescapably going to see impacts due to human-induced climate change every single day, somewhere in the world, uh, a weather pattern, an extreme event is going to be broken. In the United States, you just recently had you know, wildfires in Denver and then uh, snowstorms in the Northeast and you had tornadoes in uh, Kentucky. All of these were unprecedented events which can very well be attributed to the fact that global temperature has already been increased by more than one degree centigrade. And therefore, the, uh, the future is no longer uh, going to be based on the past. And so we have to be prepared for that. And that's why loss and damage from the impacts of climate change is now a burning issue that needs to be addressed. Uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, from a perspective of vulnerable countries, we didn't get what we wanted in, in the COP decision. Uh, we wanted a, a climate facility, a, a loss and damage facility uh, for financing uh, vulnerable countries uh, to uh, um, give them some support for the loss and damage they're suffering. We didn't get that, but we got a dialogue on it, which is good. We can still continue to talk, and we hope to revive this issue again at the end of this year in COP27, which will be in Egypt, hosted by Egypt. I am not in love, but I'm open to persuasion. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with a lover, I could hold my hair back.
Salim Ulhaq was asked to define what is loss and damage. So there is an operational functional definition which uh, I use, which is that we use the term loss to refer to things that are completely lost. So if a human life is lost, that's gone forever. If a ecosystem is lost or a species is lost, it's gone forever. And no amount of money given to the victims uh, will compensate them for the loss that's gone. That's gone forever. On the other hand, damage refers to things that can be repaired. A road can be repaired. A house can be repaired. Uh, an embankment overtopped by floods can be repaired and so on. If you have enough money, you can repair the damage that was done. So loss is irreversible loss. Damage is repairable damage. That's sort of a functional definition of it. And the, uh, the overlap with adaptation, and there is an overlap, it's not a fine distinction, it's a fuzzy uh, 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 overlap, is, in my view, a sort of before and after scenario. Before the impacts happen, we prepare ourselves. That's adaptation. That's what I've been working on for the last 20 years. As you know, I've been a lead author in the IPCC third, fourth, and fifth assessments on adaptation uh, chapters. Um, that's been my bread and butter for a long time. But adaptation is in anticipation of the impacts of climate change. But once those impacts actually happen, they've occurred, loss and damage is now happening, then it's beyond adaptation now. It's about dealing with those results. The impacts have happened. Uh, people have lost lives. Uh, infrastructure has been damaged. Uh, we now need to deal with that and we have to pick up the pieces. Um, and uh, I mentioned the example of the United States of America. You'll recall when you got hit by Hurricane Ida uh, some months ago last year, it, it hit the, the coast, which is, you know, regular hurricane season hit Louisiana. But it traveled all the way up to uh, New York and New Jersey, and it caused floods in New Jersey. Uh, and more than 50 people lost their lives in New Jersey, in the United States of America, the richest country, most technologically advanced country in the world. And that was climate change. That that would not have happened with a normal hurricane. And so, you know, even in the United States of America, you're suffering loss and damage. And President Biden visited uh, the victims, said this was climate change and offered uh, compensation to the victims from the federal budget through the federal uh, agency. So, you know, the reality of dealing with the impacts of climate change is the reality now everywhere, even in the United States. Similarly, there were flash floods in Germany where nearly 200 people lost their lives in Germany. So just to make an interesting point, you know, the flash flood that killed nearly 200 people in Germany earlier last year, uh, in Bangladesh, we have floods that are 10 times or more bigger than that, but they don't kill as many people because we have very good early warning systems and people don't die as in those numbers anymore. Used to many decades ago, but they don't anymore. So in many ways, Bangladesh is much more resilient and adapted to the impacts of climate change than Germany and the United States are. So there's a some lesson learning that, you know, rich countries can do from poor countries in terms of how to deal with these impacts, which are now reality everywhere. And the way that the UNFCC characterizes loss and damage, it uses three words to describe it. One of them is avert loss and damage, minimize loss and damage, and the third is address loss and damage. And in my view, the terms avert and minimize uh, are... Um, 
synonymous with adaptation. They are uh, minimizing and averting before something happens. But then address is after it happens. Address comes when, when you've uh, not done enough minimizing and averting. And in my view, the importance of loss and damage in a scientific context is something that I would uh, put forward. This is not uh, a generally accepted formulation, but it is my personal view that in the future, the success of adaptation and the success of even mitigation will be determined by how much loss and damage we can minimize, how much we can avert, because we are not going to be able to avert and minimize all of it. It's going to happen. We will have loss and damage from climate change every year, everywhere going forward. And so our efforts to minimize it on the one hand by reducing emissions to keep the temperature below a threshold of 1.5 degrees at the same time as our efforts to adapt and be better prepared. All of this goes towards the ultimate indicator being how successfully are we able to minimize the damage and loss that is occurring because of these events and because of the increased temperature. Uh, so to me, this is now a new metric for measuring success or failure of adaptation and mitigation efforts going forward. And, and how do you think we're doing? Not well at all. <laughs> you know, we have 25 years to avert it. We didn't do it. We didn't avert mm-hmm. it. It's happening. Yeah. Um, so we have failed the first test. The, the second test for us now is over the next 10 years, whether we can minimize even worse impacts in the longer term. Uh, but the next 10 years is basically locked in. The next 10 years, we have to just deal with the impacts as best we can, adapt for the, to them, prepare ourselves for them, uh, do as rapid uh, emission reduction as we can uh, within those 10 years, because that will determine whether or not we can segue into a less than two, de- two degrees uh, temperature rise, uh, which would minimize the even bigger impacts of the future. But we are, as I said, in a ch- climate changed world. It is already happened. It is get, getting worse, not better. And we just have to be prepared for that. You're listening to the Climate Action Show, and this is Dr. Salim Haq from Bangladesh. He wants us to know how they are transforming themselves from the victims of the climate emergency to leaders in adaptation. Let me take a few minutes, if you don't mind, to tell you the story of my country, Bangladesh. All right. So, you know, Bangladesh, uh, well, it's a country of well over 160 million people living in less than 150,000 square kilometers, tiny little area uh, with a population density of well over a thousand people uh, per square kilometer, which is usually, you know, what you find in a city state like Hong Kong or or Singapore, not in a country. Uh, And it's located on the delta of two of the biggest rivers in the world. The Ganges, Brahmaputra regularly gets flooded, regularly hit by cyclones coming in from the Bay of Bengal. Um, It's a very poor country. It's one of the least developed countries. uh, And it is uh, susceptible and very vulnerable to climate change. Now, as it happens in Bangladesh, we have known this for a long time. <laughs> we, you know, 12, 13 years ago, we developed our own climate change strategy. We've developed our own climate change fund. The national exchequer is now going, 8% of the national budget this year is allocated to dealing with climate change. Um, I often argue that uh, Bangladesh has the highest 
awareness of climate change in the whole world. You can ask anybody on the street in Bangladesh about climate change, then they'll know about it. Uh, if anything, we've gone too far. You know, if it rains heavily, people say that's climate change. If we have a hot day, they say it's climate change. We, we over-attribute everything to climate change, but we know about it. And just to give you one you know, indicator of that, when we were in Glasgow, and this is true for previous COPs as well, uh, we had three private television channels from Bangladesh send reporters to Glasgow reporting live from the COP every single day to their audiences back home. These are just general audiences who knew what a COP was, who knew what was happening there, who were tracking progress on a day-by-day basis on what was happening in the, in the discussions in the COP. I doubt any other people around the world, you know, PBS did it this time for the United States. So that was progress in the US, but I would say in the past, that is not likely. Maybe they learn about the end result, but they don't track it during the two weeks of the COP. And so, in our country, we have been well aware of it. And, and we have also evolved our thinking about it. We started off declaring our vulnerability. So we used to be, we used to proudly call ourselves the most vulnerable country in the world. And we'd have arguments with other countries who felt they should be the most vulnerable country. Uh, but we don't do that anymore. We now uh, see ourselves as becoming uh, the most resilient. We haven't become the most resilient, but we want to be the most resilient country. So we have segued from emphasizing vulnerability, which hasn't gone away, it's still there, but emphasizing our resilience. And as I said, we have quite a lot to be proud of in terms of our resilience in dealing with these impacts of climate change. I mentioned cyclones, uh, preparedness and, and flood preparedness. And now we are going one step further. In fact, in Glasgow, our prime minister uh, visited Glasgow at the beginning and she declared a new uh, program called the Mujib Climate Prosperity Plan. This is for the next 10 years. So the, the concept is going even beyond resilience. We are no longer just uh, building resilience to tackle and cope with. We are now going to prosper despite climate change. That's our aim over the next 10 years. And it's about, in the adaptation uh, jargon, it's about transformational adaptation, not just about incremental adaptation anymore. Used to be incremental. We've done incremental, we're doing incremental. We are now aiming for transformational. And, and so we have segued into seeing, attacking climate change, tackling climate change as a very positive phenomenon. It's something we are going to learn to do. We are going to help the rest of the world to learn to do because they will have to do what we are doing today. They will have to do tomorrow or day after tomorrow and we can help them. And Bangladesh is well on the way of going up this learning curve of dealing with the impacts of climate change and doing quite well. You know, even on an economic front, the COVID-19 crisis has hit our, our neighbors in South Asia, not as bad in Bangladesh. The development pathway of Bangladesh over the last 50 years, we've, we just celebrated our 50th anniversary, has been phenomenal. Bangladesh has done very, very well uh, in terms of uh, being a least developed country. We are now graduating from least developed country status as an economy, even though we have, we still have a lot of poverty, we still have a lot of vulnerability, we are still overcoming that. And so I personally and my countrymen, we see climate change no longer as something that's going to cripple us. It's something that we'll have to face, but we'll come out the other side. And if we're smart about it, we'll come off better off on the other side of it. So let me give you two examples. Um, in, in Bangladesh, the, we, we've done quite a lot of vulnerability mapping. We know which parts of the country, which parts of the population are the most vulnerable. Uh, by far, the most vulnerable are the low-lying coastal zones of the country where 
tens of millions of people are living and we have sea level rise and salinity intrusion. And already in Bangladesh, um, our scientists, our agricultural scientists have come up with a wide variety of saline tolerant varieties of rice. And these have been um, provided through private sector entrepreneurs to farmers. And if you go and visit Bangladesh, you'll see around the coast, farmers, millions of farmers in billions of hectares are growing saline tolerant varieties of rice. They're more expensive, but the farmers know that they are better off with growing them and doing that. Similarly, households are suffering from during the dry season for a, a couple of months. Uh, they, they don't have enough good fresh water to drink because water has become salinized. The groundwater has been salinized. So all over the coastal zone of Bangladesh, if you go and visit, you'll see every rooftop, there's a water, rainwater harvesting uh, device and a tank. Everybody captures rain, rain during the monsoon period. And then you have a tank on top of your roof and that's enough drinking water. You just need it for drinking uh, to provide you with drinking water during the few months that uh, the the uh, the other drinking water is is saline. And these are just two examples which have gone to scale. By the way, these are now millions of farmers and millions yeah. of households uh, doing this themselves. And so we we plan and we hope uh, to empower our people so that the the transformational um, element of our uh, thinking is people is making the people knowledgeable and capable to do what they need to do and then do it. And yes, yeah. all of them will do it and it will happen over the next 10 years. And we, I, I'm absolutely confident we can do it. You know, this uh, the concept of transformation totally resonates with me. And I also um, want to ask about the personal transformation that, that you've made that's allowed you to become one of the leading spokespeople on climate change around the whole world. What, what is your personal story? <laughs> Thank you, Chris. So um, I uh, let me start with my undergraduate uh, university uh, education. I started my undergraduate education in the United Kingdom in London at Imperial College. I, I was a biologist. I studied uh, biology. Uh, I did my PhD in biology in the UK. And then I returned to Bangladesh, my home country. Uh, and I uh, joined the university, Dhaka University in the biology department. I taught biology there for a few years. And we started this think tank on uh, called the Bangladesh Center for Advanced Studies. And we started working on environment, which was then, this is now the mid 80s, which was a new subject. And not many people were working on environment. The government didn't have a ministry of environment. It wasn't an official subject in any university. So we started working on environment more broadly. And then in the late 80s, early 90s, I got involved in doing some early studies, in fact, with the Woods Hole uh, Center in the US, in, in uh, Massachusetts, um, a global study on sea level rise, where they invited me and my colleagues to do the ground truthing. They did a, a global study of uh, various deltas, and uh, I did the Bangladesh um, Ganges Brahmaputra Delta sea level rise. So that's one of the earliest studies. It, it still gets cited, you know, 30 years later as you know, 10% of Bangladesh will go underwater. <laughs> it was a very crude mapping of what would happen with a one meter sea level rise uh, to, uh, to Bangladesh. It, it's much more complicated than that. But that at that time, it was just a very simple extrapolation. And then I got interested in, in uh, climate change impacts and, and uh, in uh, starting in Bangladesh, but I also broadened my interest into other 
uh, vulnerable developing countries, particularly the least developed countries uh, in Asia and Africa. And that's what I've been doing in terms of my research ever since. Um, but at the at the UN Framework Convention, I also uh, am one of the few people that's uh, uh, been to every single one of the COPs, 26 of the COPs so far. Uh, but I don't go as a negotiator, I go as a, as a researcher. But I do have a, a role there to play as an advisor to the least developed countries, which is a, a formal caucus group of 48 of the poorest countries, including my country, Bangladesh. Uh, and I advise them on issues of adaptation and loss and damage in the negotiation. So uh, I, I bridge the science, as you said, I've been an IPCC lead author, but then I also go to the UNFCC uh, and participate in the COPS as an advisor. So bridging the science and the, uh, the political uh, spaces at the global level, and then working at the ground level uh, with uh, vulnerable communities on what we now call locally led adaptation. That's my particular area of uh, focus of my own research on adaptation. It's working with the most vulnerable communities and enabling them to uh, adapt at the local level. Um, and that's my journey. That's how I've gone uh, uh, through, through uh, <laughs> bridging science and policy over the years. Sometimes I hear people talk about loss and damage as parallel to reparations that we hear about in in issues with especially slavery. And, and I wonder, is that a useful way to think about loss and damage? Well, it is certainly a dimension that cannot be ignored, but it isn't the only way of doing it. And if I might uh, uh, make a personal comment on uh, the current U.S. administration, uh, which I admired, you know, the, the Biden presidency uh, is a, certainly a, a huge a positive difference from his predecessor uh, in terms of the attitude to climate change. Uh, but unfortunately, in the COP in Glasgow, uh, we I saw, person. this is my personal view, of uh, particularly climate envoy John Kerry, who was then Secretary of State in Paris, uh, if a view that, that came out of the Paris Agreement that loss and damage was about liability and compensation. And that those are taboo words for the U.S. They don't want to accept any liability or compensation. We, the developing countries, are no longer asking for liability and compensation in the UNFCC. Um, we are saying, how about solidarity? How about, uh, you know, recognizing the impacts of climate change? I mentioned Joe Biden giving money to the citizens of New Jersey. But in Glasgow, he wouldn't give us one dollar uh, to uh, the other people in the world. And neither did Angela Merkel. She gave several hundred million uh, compensation to her own for loss and damage to her own citizens. But in Glasgow, they didn't give one euro. So they, this is an anomaly that we need to discuss. We, hopefully we can take it forward and convince people that they need to do it. But the other end of the spectrum to me is an extremely non-political end, which is the reality of climate change. It's happening. It's affecting people. We're going to have to deal with it, whether we accept it as human-induced or not human-induced. It doesn't make a blind bit of difference. If your house is hit by a fire or a snowstorm or a rainstorm, it, you know, you are in trouble. If my house is hit, I am in trouble. If I can help you or you can help me, we should do that. We should just do that as a sense of solidarity, a sense of humanity. And to me, that end of the spectrum of reaching out to each other and helping each other is far more powerful than the 
other end of the spectrum, which is about reparations or compensation or, you know, who pays for this? You, the you're the polluter, you should pay. Uh, you know, those are arguments that are that will happen. You can't ignore them. But to me, those are not the interesting arguments. The interesting bits are what do we do in practice? How do we deal with the reality of the problem and find ways to help each other deal with the reality of the problem? And in fact, as I mentioned, Bangladesh can help the United States. This is not the other way around necessarily. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love your emphasis on thinking of the world as neighbors and that we have neighbors who are suffering and, and uh, our responsibility doesn't end at the national borders just as our humanity doesn't end at the national borders. In my view, the broad uh, framing of loss and damage is on uh, climate justice, all right, or what I would call climate injustice, where climate change, human-induced climate change, is clearly a problem created by rich people all over the world. There are rich people in Bangladesh who are just as uh, culpable as rich people in, in America, but rich people in rich countries mostly because of their emissions of greenhouse gases. And the victims of those emissions are mostly poor people in all countries, even you know, poor people in the U.S., um, if you look at the more than 1,000 people who died from Hurricane Katrina when it hit New Orleans, they were all poor people. No rich Americans died. They were all poor black people living in the Ninth Ward of New Orleans. So even in the U.S., the people who die are poor people. Um, and so rich people causing a problem, poor people suffering the consequences, that's not right. That's just morally wrong. Whatever religion you belong to, your religion will teach you that that is an injustice and you should oppose it and do something uh, against it. And so to me, the framing of loss and damage is very much under uh, climate justice. And so the segue from climate justice into just transition, in my view, is one form of climate justice that is prevalent, I see, in discussions, particularly in the developed world, in the US and in Europe, where it gets applied uh, uh, quite rightly, I have nothing against it, to uh, helping the people working in the fossil fuel industry. So coal workers, for example, making sure that they are not the ones who get suffering. If we could close down coal, which we should, coal workers should not be the ones to suffer. We need a trust transition to enable them to get retrained to do you know, solar energy jobs or whatever. They need to be taken care of. That's absolutely correct. That to me is how just transition is being rolled out. But it's very Northern, by the way. You know, in the South, to us, it's the injustice of loss and damage that is orders of magnitude more important than keeping the coal workers uh, getting their jobs. We are dying uh, by the impacts of climate change. You know? So to us, the loss and damage from climate change is a, is a far, far bigger issue of climate justice or injustice than uh, just transition. Not that I have anything against it. I'm, I'm, I'm not opposing climate uh, just transition, but I am saying that it is one end of a spectrum of climate justice. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm in the other end of the spectrum. And to me, my end of the spectrum is far more important. But recognizing that climate justice is a gigantic Needed. issue. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and we all need to join forces. This is, you know, where it, it's a global solidarity uh, comes into play. You know, I will give you solidarity for climate transition, just transition in the U.S. You give me solidarity for loss and damage happening in Bangladesh. And we need to work together to 
tackle the impacts of climate change. These are all part of the complex climate change emergency and crisis that we are in right now. This song is called Lazarus. Thank you to Jacob Richards or Pushka, an artist from Nam, Melbourne. Their music is deeply inspired by conservation and an anti-whaling trip to Antarctica.
What are the top three things Bangladesh can teach the developed world about the transformational benefits of climate resilient development? So my, I'll give you my top three uh, bits. Firstly, it's the social um, capital issue, not technology and not money. It's people knowing what they need to do, uh, wherever they live, wherever they do, whatever profession they have, whatever age they are, whatever gender they are, everything is, is specific to them, but they need to know what to do. And then they need to know what to do to help everybody when something happens. And, uh, you know, the we have regular drills on what happens in a flood, what happens in a cyclone. I'll give you cyclone warning as an example. We got hit by cyclones forever. You know, we're a cyclone-prone area. Every year, cyclones come in from the Bay of Bengal. In past decades, when we had a super cyclone, it would kill, literally kill, hundreds of thousands of people. Hundreds of thousands of people died from cyclones. Nowadays, when we have a cyclone, a super cyclone, we had one uh, just a, a, a year and a half ago, the deaths were in the few dozens. More than 3 million people got evacuated. They got the warning. They evacuated. They went to shelters. Um, the few dozens that died were mostly fishermen who were out at sea who couldn't get back to land in time. So we have a policy of no one gets left behind. School kids in the coastal zone get training on, they get assigned households, you know, a widow living on her own. There'll be two school children whose assignment is to go and get the widow and take her to uh, a shelter to make sure that she uh, is taken to a shelter. And, and it's the most effective cyclone evacuation in the whole world, I can tell you. It's the most effective in the whole world. And so we have been able to do that. It in, involves technology, tracking the cyclone, warning with the cyclones, giving uh, um, warnings by mobile phones, etc. But it is mainly people knowing what to do. People themselves have acquired the knowledge of what a problem is, how the solution to the problem is, what do I have to do, and then we all do it. And to me, that's the number one uh, strength of resilience, people knowing what to do and then doing it out of a sense of solidarity, just neighbors helping neighbors, as you said. That's the number one thing. The number two is to use the scale connection of very local 
to national to global. And, you know, the technology that we're using right now, you know, I'm talking to you from across the world, we're talking to each other. We now have the means to scale from very local to national to global very quickly. And this technology is a huge gift to all of us. We need to be using it. And in Bangladesh, we are. I mentioned the cyclone warnings. Nowadays, we can get the cyclone warning on our smartphones. And, you know, a large number of people, everybody has a mobile phone. A big proportion of them have smartphones. And on the smartphones, they can actually track the satellite. They can watch the satellite in real time. They can figure out, I have two hours to get to the shelter. They can figure it out for themselves and then can go to the shelter on time and, and uh, save themselves. So this technology reaching the grassroots to the very local level is something that is now possible and we can do that. So we need to work more on linking the very local to the national and the global. And then finally, I would say, yes, the national government, I must praise our Prime Minister, Sheikh Hasina, she has taken climate change extremely seriously. She has uh, made uh, uh, tremendous investments in it at the national level, and she's now a global leader. Uh, you may uh, be aware she now chairs uh, the group of climate vulnerable uh, countries called the Climate Vulnerable Forum. This is 55 of the poorest, most vulnerable countries in the developing world. Uh, the, it, every two years, they change leaders, uh, uh, head of government, uh, she took over from the Marshall Islands and is now the chair of this group uh, until uh, later this year uh, when she will hand over to Ghana, who will be the next chair. And and the, her, her becoming the chair of that group in Glasgow was uh, recognition of the role that she personally had played in uh, taking climate change extremely seriously at the national level. And so we need other leaders to do the same. Street CR Community Radio, 855 AM. So mindset is the key, actually. The difference is thinking. Um, and as I said, thinking of oneself as poor and vulnerable is in itself an extremely debilitating uh, thought process. You know, um, if you if you think of yourself as a poor person, or a poor person and a vulnerable person to climate change, and therefore nothing much that can be done. Uh, you just have to take it. Um, that is a very debilitating uh, perspective to have. On the other hand, you can still be, um, you know, poor and vulnerable, but you can say, well, I'm not going to uh, um, let that get me down. I'm going to do something about it. And I'm going to find out things that I can do, allies I can work with, join forces with, and that's what the vulnerable countries have done, by and large. This Climate Vulnerable Forum, by the way, was created 12 years ago by then President Nasheed of the Maldives, who brought together leaders of the vulnerable countries and said, guys, you know, we have to take this thing seriously. We have to become leaders. We can't just be the recipients of, uh, of aid or demanding, you know, more uh, uh, support. Uh, we do that, but we're going to do more than that. And in fact, the Climate Vulnerable Forum now is very much a leadership forum. They are the ones who are moving forward. They were the first group of countries that set a target of 100% renewable energy by 2050, long before anybody else was doing this. All right. So, you know, the Climate Vulnerable Forum countries are now very much taking leadership positions in tackling climate change because it's a, for many of them, it's an existential threat, particularly the island countries. For most of them, it's a very, very serious threat that they have to deal with, whether they like it or not. 
but nevertheless, they can help the rest of the world do the same as well, because it's a global threat. Everybody needs to be doing it. Countries, even the United States of America just by itself, cannot solve the doing it. Countries, even the United States of America just by itself, cannot solve the climate change problem and cannot protect itself from the impacts of climate change. Uh, to me, the climate change problem is no longer about the problem. It's about solutions to the problem. And to me, adaptation is a solution. That's what I work on, the solution to the problem. And Bangladesh, as I said, we are in Bangladesh, we are in solution space. We are no longer in problem space. We, you know, we knew the problem 10 years ago. That was an old story. The new story is we're solving the problem. Uh, we're not solved. We haven't solved everything, but we are in the process of solving problems. All of us, everybody in the country. My closing thought would be uh, to build on what I just said. Uh, we need to be joining forces across the globe more effectively than we have. Um, and in, in my view, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, has presented us with a mixed uh, blessing in terms of globalizing us. You know, I'm sitting here talking to you on a Zoom call or on a, a, a virtual meeting. I teach my students virtually now in my university. Uh, I'm sure you're doing the same. It, it, this is now a big asset to us. Uh, we don't have to fly around the world to meet. Uh, we, it's nice to meet. I, I love meeting you. Uh, I but look forward it, to it that is, too. It isn't necessary anymore. And we can do things a lot faster, a lot more effectively, as you may know. And may, may I take this opportunity to invite you to join our next Gobeshina conference, which we do virtually now. Uh, it'll be the last week of March. And I invite you to come and uh, give a talk at our conference. Uh, and the focus will be on locally led adaptation at the global level. And the question is, can we link local adapters with each other across the world and learn from each other, share with each other? Adaptation is very location specific. So it isn't that easy to make um, connections, but it isn't possible either. And sharing stories and sharing experience and getting to know each other is a very important part of building that social capital that I mentioned, which is a key element in building resilience across the world. And people knowing about each other across the world, people in the US learning about people in Bangladesh, I think is a positive win-win for all of us. And if we can do that better and at scale and faster, then we will uh, be that better, that much better at tackling climate change uh, that we all need to be doing. Here from Indian journalist Andisha Shetty speaking to a group I belong to called Covering Climate Now. And she's speaking about after COP, how do we keep the climate story alive? Andisha, you, you specialize in health coverage. We've talked a little bit about this. And as you know better than any of us, India has some of the most polluted air in the world, thanks partly, not only, but partly to burning lots of coal. Disha, can you talk to us about how people's, individual people's health concerns for themselves, for their children, et cetera, are a way to engage audiences with the climate story? And how do you yourself in your coverage, how do you try and, uh, and play that role? Right. So firstly, thank you so much for having me on this webinar. Um, I started writing about climate change after I was covering health for a while. So by the time I started writing about how climate change was impacting communities across India. For me, 
the health impacts just stood out. So for instance, if because of water scarcity in a particular community, uh, women were having to walk longer, uh, it was having fallouts on their bodies. Uh, they'd have joint aches, uh, they would have, um, they would drink less water to conserve water, and that would have uh, other health complications for them. Uh, if floods were becoming more frequent, then it would have impact on their maternal health, it would have impact on sanitation, um, and um, vaginal infections, maternal mortality rates, and, and a lot of those kinds of fallouts. Um, some of the most common things that I saw in India with uh, in areas where sea level was rising, the salt water would come inside in, in coastal areas and it would mix with the groundwater because a lot of these communities were drinking water from extracting groundwater and using it to drink. And that that mix uh, mixing would result in the groundwater getting uh, more salty. And then that would have impact on uh, pushing up rates of hypertension in the community. And in Bangladesh, it's documented to have uh, pushed up rates of uh, miscarriages in pregnant women uh, and also uh, birth complications. So as, as a journalist and as a health journalist, primarily, I was able to be uh, to see these impacts that were actually just um, it's you can't escape it. It's in your face. It just wasn't being documented in the same way. Um, air pollution, of course, India has one of the world's most polluted air, uh, the entire Indo-Gangetic plate and of course even Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh, Nepal now uh, has uh, extremely bad toxic air and everybody is concerned about their children. So that way you can make it and, and it's, you know, uh, there's a general sense that people don't care about climate change. This is one way to make it relatable to them because every Every parent is concerned about what kind of air my baby is breathing in. There are actually people moving out of Delhi because, uh, and if they can afford to, because uh, the air is too bad for uh, their kids. Uh, they care obviously about elderly. How do, you, do your editors see this as a plus in terms of, we're going to talk about health to get people interested in the climate story. Is that understood by your colleagues in the newsroom? Yes, yes. Now in the past uh, uh, I'd say two to three years, there's a tremendous and I think advocacy has played a huge role because you also have a lot of NGOs and, and I think uh, the young kids have really made climate story and uh, a, a headline. And so editors certainly are very sensitive to these stories. In fact, uh, they commission more of these stories. Um, so I think within the newsroom, there's certainly appetite for it and there's interest to publish these stories. Um, and on the journalist, journalism side also, um, the expertise is, is uh, increasing as well. Um, but people are certainly interested. Uh, mostly I find a lot of people asking me what can we do? Because I think for a long time it's being made to look like individuals can change these systems and they can't. Um, and I find it hard to tell them that it's not really on you to do, do all of this. Uh, and in, in the, the only way they can push for changes through electoral politics. And somehow I think as journalists, that's something that we can push for. Of course, one of the most uh, really controversial moments in COP26 came at the very end when India, backed by China, demanded that the final agreement call not for a phase out of coal, but only a phase down. As you know, India got lots of criticism for that, both on the substance of the position and also on the process, the fact that it unveiled its demand at literally the last minute of these negotiations. Uh, can you explain the Indian government position, not 
I know that you're not the Indian government and you're not responsible for them, but, but can you explain that position? Because I think that the rest of the world didn't really hear India's position on why they had that point of view. And could you also give us a little information about what journalists should bear in mind as we cover not just India, but international climate action going forward and these issues, the very vexing issues, especially of loss and damage? So I will start with this. On the public health side, we now know that India's population has stabilized um, and uh, uh, we've reached replacement level and our population is no longer set to grow, grow as, as much as we thought it would. But we still have about 1.3 billion people and that's a huge population whose energy needs are to be met. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about what kind of people am I talking about? I'm talking about a largely agrarian population which might not have running water at home. They might not, in some cases, even have electricity. They might be living in mud homes. You are asking that population to do more. Um, and I think uh, that's the nuance a lot of journalists in the West miss, that a typical Indian um, uh, individual in, in living in rural area, which a, lar a large population uh, of our country does live that way, isn't running through multiple uh, cups, disposable cups of coffee in a day and isn't really keeping their lights on 24-7. Uh, uh, that's not the lifestyle that we're talking about and that's not the population we're asking uh, uh, to step up to do more. In fact, we're asking developing countries with very little to do even more. Um, so I think the Indian government which knows our population and understands the needs of our country, was, was trying to defend our future energy needs. At the same time, I've been covering a lot of movement towards renewable energy, and India has been uh, uh, making huge strides in solar energy, in uh, small hydropower. Um, and uh, um, that's something that India doesn't get enough credit for. Um, and uh, in terms of what happened before COP was there was obviously a lot of promises about climate finance and acknowledgement that there will be some acknowledgement of loss and damage. Um, as COP progressed, none of that was delivered. And in the end, it was all about can India and China do more? Um, and I think that uh, this is while this was my first COP, this was my second UN event because I've covered the General Assembly as a UN fellow in 2019. And I understand that even though the UN system tries to be egalitarian, it is not. There is a lot of bullying that happens. There's a lot of politics that happens. Um, and while uh, uh, rich countries refuse to deliver on any of their um, dues when it came to climate finance and loss and damage, and asking developing countries to do more, it would by it would merit actually criticism of it should merit criticism of their stand, but it did not because I think a lot of journalists in the global north really don't understand what the global south looks like, um, and that's something that I hope will change in the years forward. Thank you. That's Deja Shetty. She is an independent science journalist from India. I'll just note one other point there, as I understand it. Part of the concern on the part of both India and, and uh, China was that why is this agreement singling out coal among the fossil fuels uh, when, as Alex Thompson has said, uh, you know, in Europe and the United States, basically coal is a declining industry. And so to ask uh, the U.S. to get rid of coal is not such a big ask, whereas both India and China still depend a lot on coal. And of course, you'll note that that uh, the final agreement did not mention oil, did not mention gas at all. 
So these are things to broaden all of our perspective on these questions. Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Show. Before I go, I'd like to ask you to become a subscriber to Radio 3CR. Thanks to all of you who already are members, it's time to renew your subscription. This is community-owned media. It's a very precious and rare thing. It means we can be independent. And with climate change, as you can see, you've followed the toxic climate wars in Australia, a lot of it pushed by the media, the mainstream media. The more independent media we have, the more Australia will stop being a colossal fossil and become more of an advanced country in progressive and bold action on climate change. It means we can bring you in-depth items, such as today's talk by Dr. Salim Ulhaq. There are 400 volunteers keeping this station on air, so please ring up in business hours to subscribe. The number is 0394198377. So now my name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically these big large fires have been quite rare but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common so we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Talk about the Greens, that, bunny, that bunch of idiots. Hey there, Climactic Collective listeners. I'm Emerald Moon. And I'm Tom Bella. And together we host Serious Danger. A podcast about Australia's broken political system and its greatest threat. The Australian Greens. <laughs> it's a show about green politics in Australia. The kind of politics that puts people and the planet before profit. We talk to cool and interesting people about fighting for good shit, like taxing billionaires. Housing for all. Workers' rights. First Nations justice. Join us on Serious Danger every Sunday. You can subscribe to us anywhere you get podcasts. You can find us on Patreon. We're at Serious Danger AU on the socials or just head to SeriousDangerPod.com. That's Serious Danger with me, Emerald Moon. And me, Tom Ballard. Do you think we need something at the end there? Um, Go green. <laughs> <laughs>